The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Appreciate you being here this morning. We have five more days of 2020. Are you excited? (laughs) Five more days until the new year. Now, to me, of course, this year is a little different than most. You're hoping this COVID thing is going to go away in the new year, but uh, and it will. Uh, after January 20th, it'll all go away. Uh, but to me, the new year means a new Bible reading program. And I hope, like I said, that you've picked one out already and you're planning on going through the Bible next year. I want to share with you a quote from a letter that I received back in January of 2008. Now, if you've been listening to me for any length of time, you know that I occasionally harp on the fact that as a Christian, you should be reading through your Bible every year. I kind of think that's a minimum. It doesn't mean if you don't read your Bible, you're not a Christian. It just means you're not a very good one. <laughs> yeah. And I'm serious because, I mean, we claim to be followers of God, then we ought to want to know what He says to us, and that's found in the Bible, so you might want to be reading it, all right? And I I meet people at conferences, and I get letters from people telling me that I challenge them to read the Bible. One lady said, we heard about this idea of reading through the Bible from Berean Bible Church, and I'm like, it's not anything new that I invented or came up with, it just kind of, to me, is like, again, if you're a Christian, you want to read, all right? So... Um, but I like challenging people to read through it. I think it's one of the most important things we can do. And, and all the people that I've challenged and the people who've taken that challenge, I've never had anybody come to me at the end of the year and say, that was a waste of time. I didn't get anything out of it. They always tell me what a blessing it was, um, how good it was in their life. I met a couple at our spring conference one year who actually challenged and convicted me because they had taken my challenge to the nth degree. The woman had read through her Bible nine times in a year and a half. And she was so excited about what she was learning, she could hardly contain herself. They told me at the conference that they were working on a program of reading that would take them through the Bible every 30 days. That's about 40 chapters a day. It's about an hour and a half to two hours a day. Here's a quote from a letter they sent me. We are eight days into our new goal of reading the Bible through every 30 days. This would mean at the eighth day that they have read a fourth of their Bible in eight days. That would be 96 days worth of a year program in eight days. Okay? They said, it is awesome and so rewarding. If people only knew what reading the Bible would do for them, I fear we wouldn't be able to afford one. That is powerful, people. I agree. If people just understood what was in there and what it would do for us. Now, two weeks ago, this was back in 08, like I said, two weeks ago I was thinking about them, so I I wrote him, and uh, he wrote me back, and then he called me, and we talked for a while. It's been 12 years since they wrote me, but here was, uh, since we've talked, since they wrote that letter, it's been 12 years, 
And last week when I wrote him, here was his response to me. He said, we're both doing well and reading through regularly. Because I wrote him, I said, how, how are you doing with the Bible program? Are you still reading through the Bible every 30 days? So he says, we're reading through regularly, albeit at a little slower pace. I started memorizing, and with the time I needed, I had to cut down on my reading. Now, when he says cut down, he says, I am now on a two-month schedule, six times a year. So he's cut way back. I told him, you're a real slacker, okay? <laughs> I mean, you're only reading through six times a year, and that's because he is spending time memorizing. So I just thought, you know, that's encouraging. And the thing is, they are both so excited. This is not a work. Yes, and they do have jobs, okay? I, people ask me that question. Yes, they have jobs, okay? Uh, but they still find time. You know, there's plenty of time to read your Bible. You just have to get some of the junk out of your life so you have the time that you need. Now, let me ask you this. I know I harp on this a lot. Why is it important? Why is reading your Bible important? Well, let me tell you that the Bible provides information about God that was not available anywhere else. You won't find it anywhere else. The Bible is divine self-disclosure. In it, the mind of God is revealed on many matters. And with the knowledge of Scripture, we don't have to rely on second-hand information or bare speculation to learn who God is and what He values. In the Bible, God reveals Himself. Why do we need to know about God? Why is this so important that we you know, know everything about Him that we can know? Well, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Think about that, people. Really? When you think about God, and I'll tell you, when most people think about God, they got some crazy ideas, okay? Some crazy stuff floating around out there right now. But what we think about God will determine our response to Him. And our response determines our behavior. And we cannot think right about God without knowing the Scripture. You're not going to think right about God if everything you know about God you hear from somebody else. Go straight to the source. This is not the dark ages. We have Bibles, tons of them, tons of copies. We have them on our phone, we have them on our tablet, we have them everywhere. Believers, truth matters. And no more so than when it comes to God. It's imperative that what we believe about God is the truth about Him. What we believe about God, it's called theology proper, affects how we live. And theology, believe it or not, is very practical. It touches our lives every day in many ways. Worry, anxiety, fear, depression can all be a result of faulty theology. See, a proper view of God is what strengthens us in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. It appears to me that biblical literacy is at an all-time low in our society. The solution to our fear, the solution to our anxiety, is not a psychologist, it's not a counselor, it's not a self-help book. Our solution is theology proper, a knowledge of Yahweh. We need to come to know the God of the Bible. Martin Luther said this to his opponent Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. (laughs) 
I think that most of us fall into that same category. Our thoughts of God are way too human. We have created a God in our own image. A.W. Pink said this, The God of modern religious thought no more resembles the supreme sovereign of the Bible than does the dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of the noonday sun. I agree. And only as we come to know the God of the Bible will we know what it is that He expects from us. Does He expect anything? I'd have to say that I think most Christians live as they think God expects nothing from them. What does God want from us? Well, we could probably name a lot of things, but what's number one? What does God want from us more than anything else? It's a one-word answer. Faith. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. The God who created us wants us to trust Him. Now the writer of Hebrews lays down an axiomatic truth here and he uses the aorist tense in the infinitive to please. The statement's universal in its application and it's timeless. The idea is this, without faith it's impossible to please Him at all. It's not belief in the existence of a God that's meant here, but the existence of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy. He's just. He's good. He's loving. He's wrathful. He's merciful. And He's sovereign. In order to live by faith, we must believe that God is who He says He is. I think that it should be obvious that we can't live by faith unless we understand what faith is. You know, Christians have these little buzz phrases, and we talk about a lot of things, but faith's something we should understand, right? But what is it? If someone asked you, what is faith, could you explain it to them? I would dare say that most people in churchianity couldn't give you a concrete definition of faith. So let me give you one, all right? Biblically defined, faith is understanding and assent to a proposition. Let me try to explain this, all right? Understanding. First, you've got to know what's being said, and then you assent to that. In other words, I believe what's being said. For example, if I said to you, the check is in the mail, do you believe me or not? What would determine if you believe me or not? What you know about me, all right? Okay? If you believe that I have good character, you'd say, okay, he said that. I mean, you know what check is, you know what mail is, you know all that thing. Okay, so you understand what I'm saying, and then you either believe it or you don't. And that depends on how much you know me and what you know about me. You're trusting in what I said. You have no proof of that. You're just believing what I told you. Notice what the Bible says about Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. God made a promise to Abraham. He promised him children. He promised that he would be a father of a great nation. Now Abraham is about 100 years old. His wife's about 90. And she's barren. And look at Abraham's response to the promise. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he's about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, notice it says that Abraham's faith was not weak 
The Greek word here for considered is katanoeo, and it means to consider attentively, to fix your eyes upon. The King James Bible really messes this verse up because it says this, Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body. And see, so many people have the idea that's what faith is. Faith is just stepping out on trust. You don't know anything about you. You don't consider anything. No, that's not what it says. All right? And the four oldest manuscripts of the New Testament don't have the negative in it. Abraham did consider his own body. And he did consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. And the scripture verifies this back in Genesis because it says, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham faced the facts. He didn't deny them. All right. He looked at the facts as they were, at their very worst. But having looked at them, he believed the promise from God. He believed God in the face of all opposition. Faith doesn't close its eyes to reality. He knew physically that it was impossible for him and Sarah to bear children, but he believed a promise that God gave him. Look at verse 20 and 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. Now we see here that faith is believing a promise. Alright? Gave, God gave him a promise. He was convinced that God was able to do what He promised. So that's the proposition. The promise is the proposition. He exercised faith. He believed what God told him. You can't trust God for what He has not promised. You hear people all the time, Well, I believe God's going to do this. Why? Word, you have a promise? You know, we just, uh, sometimes it's just wishful thinking. You know, we hope God does what we want Him to, and we call it faith. Abraham believed what God told him. That is what faith is. And listen, there's this nonsense today out there about, well, do you believe with your head or your heart? Right? Let me tell you something, people. Your heart is a muscle that pumps blood. Okay? You're not going to believe anything with your heart. The Hebrews believed with their heart because they, they thought that was the center of thought. All right, We believe with our heads. Okay, I've seen a gospel tract that said missing heaven by 18 inches. The head and the heart. Because you, you didn't believe with your heart, you believe with your head. That's the only way you can believe, people. And listen, no matter the subject, whether it's God or botany, the psychology or linguistics of belief is identical in all cases. Believing that 2 and 2 equals 4 is arithmetic. Believing that asparagus belongs to the lily family is botany. Botany is not mathematics, but the psychology or linguistics of believing is identical. Believing is always thinking a proposition is true. The difference between various beliefs lies in the objects or the propositions believed, not in the nature of faith. Faith must begin with knowledge. You can't believe what you don't know and what you don't understand. This is why you have to read your Bible. So you know what it says. Then you can know what to believe and what not to believe. Because I said God's being misrepresented all over the place from pulpits today. Alright? And people just shake their head and, you know, because most people are not using the Bible. And most people are ignorant of the Bible, so they'll believe whatever they're told. You have to know before you can believe. Belief is an act of assenting to something understood. 
But understanding alone is not belief in what is understood. I understand the theory of evolution. I don't believe it. I understand it. I don't assent to it. The Christian life starts with an act of faith. We believe that Christ will give us eternal life if we trust in Him alone for our redemption. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's a promise. When I believe Christ, I'm given everlasting life. How do I know I have everlasting life? Because I believe the promise. That's how I know. People say, oh no, you know because you don't drink or smoke or chew or run with girls that do. No, that's not evidence, okay? The Scripture says you believe you'll get everlasting life. Not you clean up your life, you live like a monk, then you'll have... No, whoever believes. And when I come to the living God as a guilty sinner, trusting in Yeshua and Him alone to do for me what I cannot do for myself, I'm engaged in an act of faith. I've never seen God. I've never seen this place called heaven. I've never seen Yeshua, but by faith, those things which I cannot see become realities to me. They take on substance for me. By faith, I gain assurance and conviction about things that my eyes cannot behold. That's what faith is all about. By trusting God for my eternal salvation is only the beginning. That's the start of a journey that can't be traveled successfully in any other way but by faith. Thousands of believers have trusted Christ for their salvation But they're not living by faith. They're not trusting God each and every day of their lives. Every day, and in every way, we should be trusting God in our lives. But are we? Do we really trust Him? You know, when you're hurting and your life seems to be coming apart at the seams, do you trust Him? Because when you fail to trust God, we doubt His sovereignty, we question His goodness. God views our distrust as seriously as he views our disobedience. When the children of Israel were hungry, they spoke out against God. Psalm 78, 19. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when Yahweh heard, he was full of wrath. A fire kindled against Jacob. His anger arose against Israel. Why is God so mad? Why is He so angry at them? Well, the next verse tells us. Because they did not believe in God. They did not trust His saving power. In order to trust God, we must always view all of our circumstances through the eyes of faith because faith pleases God. Your faith in God is the bottom line of your ability to deal with difficulty. And let me just say, it's the bottom line of your ability to deal with life because life is difficult. A knowledge of God is essential in the matter of trust. The Bible is the revelation of God so that in knowing Scripture, you come to know God. And in knowing God, we come to trust Him. It's hard to trust somebody you really don't know. Let me just say it's impossible to really trust somebody you don't know. People will say, well, do you trust them? I'm like, no. I don't know them. Or maybe I don't trust them because I do know them. Okay? But either way, you know, you can't trust who you don't know. You'd be foolish to trust people. Matter of fact, people are foolish all the time. That's why they get caught up in scams because they trust people they don't know. I believe that the first and foremost thing we need to know about God 
is that he is sovereign. Most of the church today denies, and I'm not exaggerating when I say most, they deny the absolute sovereignty of God. Christians speak of accidents or things just happening by chance. It's like, oh, just a roll of the dice, you got that. And I think one of the major problems in the church today in the matter of spiritual instability is the wide acceptance of Arminian theology. Calvinism and Arminianism are two opposite ends of the theological spectrum. Traditional Calvinism or Reformed theology says God is sovereign over everything. Everything. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. Psalm 115.3, I love this verse. Our God's in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Other translation says He does whatever He pleases. Well, how can He do whatever He pleases? Because He's sovereign. He's God. Can you do whatever you please? No, you can't. Of course not. You can't do whatever you please because too many things are out of your control. If I could do whatever I please, we'd have a very different government. Okay? <laughs> but listen, here's what we got to understand. God can do whatever He pleases because He controls all things. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign. Look at 1 Corinthians that David read this morning, 29, 11-13. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Listen, God did not simply create the world and then walk away. He constantly sustains that which He created. 17th century deism constructed a God who created a universe and then kind of walked away, leave it to run on its own accord. Natural laws, man's devices, it just runs by itself. God created it, just let it go. And many Christians today are practical deists. They act as if God left the world to run on its own. And they're just panicking because things aren't going the way they want them to, and they just think everything's out of control. Isaiah 46, 9-11 through says, Remember the former things of old, for I'm God. There is no other. I'm God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. That's what God does. He declares the end from the beginning because He controls it all. From ancient things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purpose and I will do it. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, possessor of all power in heaven and earth so that none can defeat His counsel, thwart His purposes, resist His will. Listen, people. The sovereignty of God is absolute, it's irresistible, it's infinite. He does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases. Whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which He has decreed from eternity. Now, if that's too strong for you, you're not that familiar with Scripture. One commentator writes this, The Bible teaches that God is all-powerful. He has complete 
authority over everything that happens, but. Watch out for those buts, man. They will get you in trouble. You know, he was doing really good. He could have just stopped. But we must never forget that he also chooses to give us free will. He does not use his power to overrule our freedom to choose the direction we go in life. So what he just said is God is not sovereign because you can make choices against his sovereignty and you can do what you want. So God controls everything but you. Like this commentator, many people are prepared to grant God's sovereignty over nature or over impersonal circumstances, such as mechanical failure. Uh, after all, nature doesn't have a will of its own, so God can just rule. God is free to operate through His physical laws as He pleases. But the concept of divine sovereignty over people seems to destroy human free will and make them no more than puppets on a stage. Yet the Bible repeatedly affirms God's sovereignty over everything, including people. This is why people, I think if you're really familiar with your Bible, you're going to understand the sovereignty of God. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you just go by your feelings. Well, I think God should do this, or I think God is like this. It doesn't matter what you think. He's revealed Himself. Get in the Word and find out what He's saying. The Bible speaks of God making Egyptians favorably disposed towards their enemies, the Israelites. God makes people like one another, okay? That's amazing. Proverbs said, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So all you got to focus on is pleasing the Lord. He'll take care of the rest. Let's go back to the Israelites. Exodus 12, 35, 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. They just trashed, okay, God just trashed Egypt. And now they're saying, hey, give us all your stuff, we're leaving. We're going to take it with us. You'd be like, no, you ain't taking, you already ruined the whole place. You know, you want to take our stuff? And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. God made the people, He gave the Egyptians a spirit to like these Israelites to give them what they asked for. The Bible tells us of God moving in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to fulfill His word. Ezra 1.1 In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet be fulfilled. That Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He stirred up his spirit so that he made a proclamation throughout the kingdom and also put it in writing. So God turned Cyrus's heart to, towards the Israelites. The Bible also tells us of King Nebuchadnezzar as official showing favor and sympathy towards Daniel. And God gave Daniel favor. He's in enemy territory. He wants to go his kind of own way, not do what they want him to do. And so he asked for favor. And it says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And he said, okay, I'll let you, I'll let you do what you want there. I think one of the strongest assertions of God's sovereignty over everything is found in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of Yahweh, He turns wherever He will. He turns it wherever He will. What the king's heart... Listen, 
The heart to the Hebrew was the thought process. When they thought about emotions, they thought of the gut, but the heart to them was the thinking process, his thinking. So here we see that Yahweh controls the thoughts of the king. Now, the truth of God's sovereignty over the hearts of all people, I think, is taught here in the strongest illustration. His control over the most absolute of wills, the king's heart. Now, you've got to understand, in Solomon's time, the king is an absolute monarch. There is no legislature to pass laws that say, oh, king, you can't do this or you can't do that. There's no Supreme Court to restrain any of his actions. The king just does whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. He's king. If you don't like it, guess what happens? You lose your head, okay? He's king. His authority over his realm is unconditional and it's unrestrained. Yet this verse teaches that Yahweh controls the heart of the most powerful monarch on earth as easily as a farmer directs the flow of water in his irrigation ditches. That's the idea here. The king's heart is a stream of water. In other words, you, the irrigation, they would just dig a ditch here, make the water go there, make the water go wherever they want to. They directed it. Well, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of God. God turns that heart wherever He wants it to go. The argument then is from the greater to the lesser. If God controls the king's heart, He can control anybody's heart, right? All must move before His sovereign influence. Now, all of us at time find ourselves and our future, immediate or long-range, in the hands of others. Would you agree with that? Sometimes we, our hand, you know, somebody's in charge. A government official could deny a visa. They could, to enter into a country, or the government can do all kinds of things to make people's life miserable. If you don't wear a mask, they drag you off to jail. I've seen it happen, okay? The saddest thing to me was men stood around and watched it happen without getting involved. Like, I'd be in jail with her, but... It's just, it's criminal, people. You know, a professor can determine the academic success of a graduate student. A supervisor can block a career. You know, all, we're in the hands of all different people. Last week I was thinking about this, and I don't even know why, but I was in the Navy living here in Norfolk back in 1977. And my father died. And my mother was a mess after his death. An absolute mess. So I put in for what was called a hardship discharge. I wanted to go back to Erie, Pennsylvania and take care of my mother. I just felt that was the right thing to do. The discharge was turned down. So I refiled. I got doctor's notes. I got all, I, I mean, I put together a package that people were telling me, you're good. You're good to go here. This, they'll, they'll take this. Well, guess what? I was turned down again. And I was thinking last week, how different would our life have been if we had moved back to Erie? You know, I'm so glad you're always sovereign because I don't know what's good for me half the time. You know, I really don't. You know, there's that country song, I think it's Garth Brooks, says, I thank God for unanswered prayers. And I prayed for things sometimes that I'm glad I didn't get an answer to, okay? Because they weren't really that good for me. But our life so often we see in the hands of others but in reality, we're not at the mercy of those people because God sovereignly rules over those decisions and actions. God moves people to do His will and He restrains people from accomplishing the evil they would normally carry out. 
I remember so vividly in the Navy, I was in charge of 1st Lieutenant Division, and I was a second class at the time, I believe, and the chief called me from operations and says, and he, he yelled at me because I'd been on the phone, but I was on the phone doing business, and so I kind of got back in his face. Not a good move, you know, in second class to do a chief, you know, so this chief just kind of basically hated my guts from then on, all right? Well, then I got transferred to his division, which was wonderful. He was a nasty fellow after all. But I believed what God said, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Every day I walked into his office and I said, good morning, chief. And he just grumbled. And I'd say, good morning, Curtis. How are you? Fine, chief. Thank you. And I carried on this conversation with myself. I did this over and over. And one day I walked in, good morning, chief. And he said, good morning, Curtis. And I was like, I got this smile on my face. I'm like, hey, it's working, you know. Within six months, we were coming back from a cruise and our helicopter leaves a day early. And the chief came to me and said, Curtis, you want to fly back with a helicopter? I'm like, absolutely. When we were out at sea, I was using his office to do Bible studies. So it was just, you know, God is in control of the human heart. Our responsibility is to please him. He takes care of other things for us. All right? I think a striking illustration of this is found in what appears to be an almost passing comment in Exodus 34. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before Yahweh God, the God of Israel. Why Why'd they have to do this? What's he talking about here? Anybody know? He's talking about the pilgrim feasts. Three of the seven feasts were pilgrim feasts. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, where all the males had to go to Jerusalem to worship for this feast. So God said they got to go. He says, I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before the Lord God three times a year. They're leaving their farms, they're leaving their homes, they're traveling to Jerusalem, and he said, don't worry about your stuff. Why? Because no one shall covet it. What? Nobody's even going to want my land? Let's try to apply this passage to our present setting. What God commanded Israel to do was the equivalent of commanding our nation to shut down all its commerce, close all educational institutes, furlough all its military personnel simultaneously, and gather all those people into one giant Christian assembly three times a year. Think of how vulnerable a nation would be, though, during those occasions. Yet, that is what God commanded Israel to do. But along with the command, He promised, no one is even going to want your stuff. <laughs> how can God say that? Because He controls the heart of men. No one will want your stuff. People will walk right by. That's a great old farm there. No one's home, but we can't. I'm not interested in it. God could make that promise because of his sovereignty. He had the power to restrain people from even desiring to harm them. God is sovereign only not over our actions. He's sovereign over our desires. And if we're going to trust God, we need to understand that he's in control of every aspect of our lives. The doctrine of God's sovereignty clearly affirms that we can trust him. Look at Lamentations 3.37. Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? No one can act outside God's sovereign will or against it. And rather than being offended by the Bible's assertion that God is sovereign both over good and bad, believers should be comforted by it. Whatever it is that we're going through, 
Whatever your situation in life, you can be sure of two things. Number one, God is controlling it. Sometimes that's not so good. People get mad. I know you're controlling this, so I'm now mad at you, you know, because I don't like what you're doing. Secondly, you can understand this. If you're his child by faith in Yeshua, he loves you. So he loves you and he's controlling your life. That's a good combination, right? How comforting is it when the God who loves us controls every event in time? We need to learn to trust Him even when we don't understand because faith pleases God. Do you know Him well enough to trust Him no matter how painful or fearful a situation may be? God controls everything that happens. Everything. Now listen to me, people. Hang on for just a few minutes and let me explain myself before you go off the rails, all right? If a businessman has a total financial collapse, it's an act of God. If a loving Christian parent loses a child through sickness or murder, it's an act of God. Now, I know that when I say that, most people who call themselves Bible believers have a fit. Their response would be, you're crazy. God is good. God is loving. God is kind. He would never do that. That sounds good. It feels good. But is it what the Scriptures say? You know, we think only what we consider good comes from God. If we consider it bad, it's not God. All right? Well, let's look at the Scripture, and let me show you some absolute proof that whatever happens, God is behind it. Notice what Job said. You, know, you know, all know about Job, okay? Job just lost everything. He was a very wealthy man. He lost all his financial assets. Everything was destroyed, and ten of his children were killed. Here is, here's Job's response. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. In other words, I didn't have anything when I started. Naked I'm going to return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is Job saying when he says the Lord taken away? All his finances just wiped out and his ten children are dead. Who's he blaming? He's blaming God. Now listen, Job was a real man, not a mythological figure. He's mentioned by Ezekiel. He is classified as one of the three great men of the Tanakh, along with Noah and Daniel. He's mentioned also by James, who refers to Job's patience and steadfast endurance. He was a contemporary of Abraham. This book goes way back to the beginning, the very beginning of beginnings, the book of Job. So after a total financial collapse and the death of ten children, Job says, The Lord has taken away. Look at verse 1, 18 and 19. Your sons and daughters, these the the messengers bringing this news to Job, were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. They're all dead. Now, he says the Lord has taken away. That's what the Scripture says. You look it up in any translation, they all say the same thing. He killed all my children. Most Christians will go crazy over this today. Job is so grief-stricken by what happened. He's lost his mind. He's saying things that he doesn't even know what he's saying. His ten children died. You can't expect him to be right. He's out of his mind. They say Job is blaspheming. I say they're blaspheming. Because they're going against the Word of God. Scripture says that Job was worshiping. Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. 
Job's not attacking God. He is worshiping when he says the Lord is taken away. He not only recognized God's sovereignty, he also recognized in it that Job, that God could do whatever he wanted to do. He's God. He's sovereign. I'm rejoicing in the sovereign God. Now, just in case you think that Job is wrong saying this, and I know people who say, I don't preach, I've heard preachers say, Job was, he was out of his mind. This is wrong. The inspired writer of the book makes a comment to avoid misunderstanding. Lest anyone say that Job should have attributed this to Satan or somebody else, the writer writes this, In all this, Job didn't sin. What? Or charge God with wrong. He, Job didn't sin. Well, wait a minute, Job said he killed his ten children. He didn't sin saying that. And he's not charging God with wrong because God did do that. Okay? All right, let's jump to the last chapter of the book. Job 42. After Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends. These are Job's comforters. God's mad at him. Why? For you have not spoken of me what is right. Watch. As my servant Job has. What? God's mad at these friends of Job's because they're not speaking of God what is true and right, but he says, Job has spoken to me what's true and right. He's not mad at Job. The Bible says that Job, who accused God of killing his ten children, didn't charge God with wrong, but in fact spoke of God what was right. Now let me ask you something. Does that fit your theology? If not, you better work on making some changes to your theology because God's not going to change, okay? God never changes. This is who He is, all right? He's sovereign. You say, well, I don't like that. That's mes- I understand that. He's God. You're not. And if you understand that He does love you, it, it makes a difference. Job's rock of refuge, and I hope when everything else seemed to crumble around him, was the sovereignty of God. You know, most of our grief and pain does not come as a clear punishment for our sins. I think we'd understand that if it happened. Most of it comes out of nowhere and baffles our sense of justice. That's why the book of Job is so relevant. Job's suffering seems to come out of nowhere, have no connection with his character. His story is recorded for us that we will have some help living through these calamities. A lot of times things in life just don't make sense. Why is this happening, Lord? Why me? I mean, I am, we talked about this earlier this morning, but I'm flying to a conference to preach at a conference and the plane crashes. God, hey, I'm trying to serve you and you crash the plane? That's why the book of Job is so relevant, people. In the midst of the worst circumstances, Job worships. He rose, tore his robe, shaved his head. Those are expressions of grief fell on the ground, and he worshipped. Now, what do you hear? When you hear the word worship, what picture comes to your mind? You think of a service with instruments and songs and, of course, preaching. That's worship. But the word worship means honor paid to a superior being. It means to give honor, homage, respect, adoration, praise, worth, the English word worth-ship. You're giving worth to the person you're worshiping. The Hebrew word worship is a powerful one. It describes the physical act of prostrating yourself on the floor before a sovereign. 
Someone who has complete control over you. I think that a simple and working definition of worship is this. Aligning ourselves with God's will, both written and providential. Now, you know what I mean by His written will. Whatever the Bible says, we bow before that. We say, okay, if you say that, that's right. By His providential will, I mean anything and everything that happens in your life. It's God provident. And a lot of times we don't like His providence in our lives. We get mad, we get upset. I've heard Christians get mad at God because they had a flat tire. And I'm like, you're really confused about things here, people. Okay? I mean, go over to another country that we hear about every morning here, about the the saints around the world who are being persecuted because of that. It's crazy. Worship is not a spiritual warm feeling on Sunday morning. It's God's people actively responding to Him. Like Job, you gave, you take away. That's like you got a right to do whatever you want. You're God. Recognizing God's sovereign rights, as Job did. Job praised the Lord. It's truly remarkable that Job followed adversity with adoration and woe with worship. He could do this because he knew God. He knew that God was sovereign and he trusted Him and he praised Him. Many years ago, a military officer quite a ways back, and his wife were aboard a ship. It's caught in a raging storm on the ocean. Seeing the frantic look in her eyes, the man tried unsexually to alleviate her fears, and suddenly she grasped a hold of his arm. She cried out, how can you be so calm? So he stepped back a few steps and he drew his sword and pointed it at her heart. Let me just comment on this illustration before I go any further. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of doing in the midst of a storm at sea. If you've been on a storm, if you've been in a storm at sea, okay, you have some idea that you're moving and rocking and rolling, and to point a sword at somebody is like, you might as well just kill them. But anyway, that's the illustration, all right? Pointing at her heart said, Are you afraid of this? And I'd have said, You better get that out away from me. Yeah, without hesitation, she answered, Of course not. And he said, Why not? And she said, Because it's in your hand to know that you love me too much to hurt me. And to this he replied, I know the one who holds the winds and the water in the hollow of his hand. He can surely care for us. The officer was not disturbed because he had put his trust in the sovereign Lord. Circumstances can look really bad. I mean, we, most of us have probably been in a circumstance where we just felt we can't even go on from this. And then it turns around and it's like, wow. As we grow in faith, we'll learn to trust God in the worst circumstances. Understanding that all occasions of pain and sorrow are under His absolute control. Faith has confidence that suffering is under the control of an all-powerful, all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan. And He brings into our lives that which is for His glory and our good. Job knew and he trusted God, which allowed him to worship in the worst circumstances. Joseph also understood the sovereignty of God, and he trusted through the worst of circumstances. I think in the story in the life of Joseph, we see the practicality of theology. So hang on here. Genesis 37 tells us that when Joseph was 17, his brothers hated him and wanted to kill him. They hated him because he was daddy's favorite. Okay? So that could cause trouble in a home, obviously. They hate him. They want to kill him. But instead, they sold him as a slave to Ishmaelites. That sure would cause anxiety and fear in most people. All right, my brothers all hate me. They sold me as a slave. How do you think you'd feel if that happened? 
Talk about rejection. Genesis 39 tells us that Joseph is a slave. Potiphar bought him, and he had him in his house. Potiphar was an Egyptian, and he's working for Potiphar. And when Potiphar's gone one day, Potiphar's wife tries to get Joseph to sin by committing adultery with her. And Joseph does what's right. He wouldn't sin against his God, and he literally ran away from her. That's what the Bible says, flee fornication. He ran. So Potiphar's scorned wife had him put in prison because he wouldn't go along with her plan. So Joseph did what was right. He didn't sin, and because he didn't sin, he's in prison. How'd that make you feel? Hey, God, man, I'm trying to do what's right, and this this is how it works? Well, the story's not over yet. After 13 years of living as a slave, Joseph interprets a dream for Pharaoh. And because of this, Pharaoh promotes Joseph to the number two man and the most powerful nation on earth at that time. And because of his position in Egypt, he's able to take care of the very brothers that hated him and sold him into slavery during a severe famine. Joseph had no bitterness. He had no unforgiveness towards his brothers because he knew that God had sovereignly ordered the events of his life. He was free from bitterness. In other words, God's sovereignty was very practical for Joseph. Notice what Joseph tells his brothers. Once he, re- he played with them a little bit, you know. But then he reveals himself. He says, and now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. In other words, you did it. I know you did it. You know you did it here. He says, For God sent me here before you to preserve life. The life he sent them there to preserve was their very own. All right? Verse 7 says, he says it again. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph saw God as the one who put him in that slavery for 13 years. And then again in verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, But God, He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Three times he stresses this. God sent me here. Joseph had a divine viewpoint. He saw things from God's perspective. He saw his brothers as instruments in God's providence to get him to Egypt. It was his brothers who sold him to slavery. But Joseph says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph's strength and his comfort in adversity came from a knowledge of God. He trusted God. Now, many years later, Joseph's father died, and his brothers were afraid that Joseph would get revenge on them for selling them for selling him into slavery. So look with me at Genesis 50 and see Joseph's response to them. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father had died, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command. They're making stuff up here. Before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. See, they're just admitting what they did was wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of your father. Joseph went, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we're your servants. Now watch Joseph's response to this. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. They did, didn't they? 
But watch what he says. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he tells his brothers, I'm not in the place of God, meaning I'm not going to take vengeance against them. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He tells his brothers, I know you meant evil. He knew that. He faced reality. He didn't think, well, maybe they didn't understand what they were doing. Maybe they liked me and they just needed some money. You know, they weren't talking about killing me and then they sold me. No, he understood. You meant it for evil. But he says, God meant it for good. All that happened was put into place by God to save the lives of his family. For 13 years, things didn't go too good for Joseph. But in the midst of his suffering, he trusted God. 13 years is a long time to sit in prison. For 13 years, Joseph had no idea why his brothers hated him so. Why they did that to him. For 13 years, Joseph trusted God when he couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But he knew God was sovereign, and he knew God controlled things, so he rested in him. You know another cool part of this story? When Joseph's in prison, the prison guards have favor towards Joseph, and they kind of make him a boss down there in prison. Okay? Believers, I want you to understand here, there is great comfort in theology proper for our daily lives. Because when you really know the God of the Bible, you can trust Him. The hurts in your life are controlled by God for your good. The way that you handle problems, temptations, trials, difficulties is a reflection of your view of God. You know, and we're, we're trying to witness and we're trying to let people know about our God and how great He is. And when they see us fall apart in the midst of a crisis, they're like, what happened to your God? But when they see Christians, when everything's going the way a Christian wants it to go, they say, praise God. And that's what praise God means. When a Christian says praise God, that means God's doing everything I want Him to do. Because we don't normally say that when our life's falling apart, do we? We don't. If you know God, you know that He's omnipresent. All of God is everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He can do anything He wants to do. And if you understand that He loves you, why would you ever worry? The God who loves me as His own child controls every event in time. Now, I, like I said, we're not always going to agree with the stuff He does. We're going to wish, Lord, this storm is kind of heavy. Can you, you know, can you do something here? Can you help me out? But He's in control. He's sovereign. He's working everything out for your good and His glory. Everything that happens is for His eternal purpose. And we know, Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now this text does not say that all things are intrinsically good or pleasant. They're not. All things are not necessarily in themselves good. We spoke about that early again this morning. It was, you know, we were talking about me this morning a lot. And uh, you know, I talked about when I got the swine flu shot, I got Guillain-Barre syndrome, was paralyzed for a time. That didn't seem good at all to me, okay? Not at all. But I knew, after I laid in that hospital bed and could not move, I knew why I was there. God had called me to preach, and I was busy doing a lot of other things. I was like, nah. you know, I was kind of like Jonah. I was on a fish trying to get away. And after that happened, I said, <laughs> okay. I have no options against this kind of control, okay? God got my attention and turned me around and put me in the right direction. 
But it doesn't mean everything's going to be right or happy or, you know, in our circumstances day by day. But He works what's best for us. Doing what is eternally good for us and in us. But in all experiences of life, even the most difficult and painful, God is working His good. Believer, no matter what happens to you, God meant it for good. Trust Him. Theology brings comfort. And I think the more you know Yahweh, the more at peace you will be in life in every situation, every circumstance. We see this in the life of Paul. One who wrote so much about God's sovereignty, more than any other person. All right, He's in prison, he's been beaten and stuck in prison, and he just praises God in the midst of it. Because his theology brought him comfort. He knew God was in control. The more you're at peace, the more you know God, the more you will be at peace with life. And listen, let's start, let's end where we started. The only way you can learn about God is from reading your Bible. So it's important to read. And it's not just that I want to check off my list for this day. We read with a point of, I want to understand God. I want to have Him reveal Himself to me. I want to see my own heart through the Word of God, what God, how God views us. I want to learn. People, if you go to the Bible with a desire to see and learn, it's exciting. It's encouraging. And after years and years of going through it over and over, you're going to start connecting things. Oh, you read something in the Tanakh, you say, hey, hey, Paul said that over in Romans. And then things just start to come together. People, there is nothing you can do, I believe, that is greater than spending time in the Word of God on a regular basis. Going through the Word of God. Studying the Word of God. Reading the Word of God. Just getting familiar with it. Get to know your God. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I wish I had more words to communicate what I feel that, Lord, the the importance of Your Word. I believe if we really did grasp the significance of it, we would spend way more time in it. God, help us to evaluate our lives, our priorities, our time, and help us to make time for You, Lord. Help us to realize how important it is to know and walk and fellowship with the living God. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Thank You, Lord, for Your patience with us. Amen. All right, questions or comments? <laughs> yes? Hey, so, I just wanted to hear your definition. How do we reconcile the problem of evil with God's sovereignty? I don't know that it has to be reconciled. Uh, Isaiah 40, 45.7 says, I, the Lord, create the evil and the good. And the word there, a lot of Bible translations have taken that and translated it different. I create the evil, I create the, the calamity and the good. They, but the Hebrew word there is raw. And if you trace raw through, you're going to find out it's evil. Okay, what we, God uses men and their evil hearts to accomplish what he wants to do. So even when people are doing evil, God's using those evil people to accomplish his own will. He controls the evil and the good. He controls all of it. All right? And I know that's hard for us to grasp because we think God only does good, but that's not what the Scriptures teach. Isaiah 45, 7. Create the evil and the good. So I think God's in control of all of it. You know, like I said, He uses evil men, and men's heart are evil. All right? They're prone in that direction. He just directs it and uses it for His own good and His own glory.
And I know that's a problem that a lot of people have. You know, they just, they, R.C. Sproul was asked about the problem of evil. How do you deal with that? And he, R.C. Sproul said this, quote, I don't know. Ask my son. He knows. <laughs> and I think it was correct what he said because I think his son does know. Because his son wrote a book called Almighty Overall. And I recommend that book, R.C. Sproul Jr., Almighty Overall. He deals with the problem of evil. And I think he deals with it in a very good way. He helps you understand uh, God's in control of everything. Anthony. So what's the saying of God gives us all a measure of faith? Uh, so even in, with those words I just spoke, it's still his, his divine, however he set it up, at his timing. Well, if you have faith... Faith is, is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, okay? It's a gift from God. But the Bible also says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In other words, initial faith to trust God comes from God, but we are responsible to grow in that faith to learn to trust Him more and more. And again, faith comes from hearing the Word of God. The more you understand the Word of God, the more you'll grow in that faith. That's what I'm saying. That growth is determined by Him. Right. Yes, You're but right. he he has he uses means to accomplish right. that end, and the means are the word of God and the providence of God, because the providence of God pushes you to the word and pushes you heavenward. You know, have you ever noticed that when let's say you're on vacation, how's your prayer life when you're on vacation? <laughs> Who's God? I'm having a good time. But when, have you noticed when you're in the midst of a crisis, you're praying constantly? I'm always convicted about that. I'm like, God, I haven't talked to you much, and things are going too well. You know, and we've got to, <laughs> we've got to focus that when things are good and they're bad, we, we need to be communicating. But we seem to use prayer as like a life preserver. Like, I'm in trouble. Could you help me out? Well, how about when things are going good? You could just come and praise me, thank me for it. You know, which is what he wants. That's right. I try to develop the habit when I get in bed at night and lay there until I fall asleep, which. Usually, sometimes it's three seconds, but <laughs> I try to just thank God for all these gifts. Because, I mean, it's amazing. I'm getting in a bed, you know, that, that's that's dry, and I'm in a air-conditioned environment or heated environment, and I've got a bathroom just, you know, a couple feet away. Everything's, I got all this, and I'm like, how can I not just thank God for everything I have? You know, the saddest thing to me is when you see an American Christian who is ungrateful. That's like an oxymoron, people. I mean, all we have, and on top of that, eternal life, and sometimes we're just not grateful. <coughs> Anybody else? No, you're meddling. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got a question here um, from Adrienne. She said, What would be the best translation for us to read, especially if this is the first time? Yes. Um, a couple. I think the ESV is a very good translation. No, I would not recommend Young's, David. Okay? David read from Young's. Young's is a literal translation. It's, okay, it's not something you want to pick up from David reading. For most people, let's, let's put a few years down the road. The ESV and the Christian Standard Bible. I think the Christian Standard Bible is very good. I think the ESV, I think those are two of the better translations out there. As far as being accurate, as far as communicating what the languages really say. But here's what I would recommend. If you go, if you're doing this through the Bible reading program, every year switch up the translation. 
and see what other translations are saying. And you'll be, you'll be amazed. And sometimes if you're reading a verse and you're like, that's confusing to me, look it up in several other translations. You just you could get a very different picture just from looking at other translations. And, uh, you know, people, this day and age, you know, I've got enough stuff on my phone that I can go, I can Bible study forever. I mean, I got commentaries, I got all kinds of Bible translations, I got everything on here. I use Takarta Bible application. And Takarta right now has got a special where they're selling a lot of things at a very good rate. I just think it's an excellent translation. You can put notes in it, you can color, you can highlight in different colors, you can do all kinds of things in that translation. And like I said, there's many, many translations. So, uh, Keith from North Carolina says, I once used the illustration of a storybook where the main character was born and died. God is the author of our story. We just can't read ahead. Let me... God is the author of a story we just you know, can't read ahead. Yeah, that's that's true. The story is laid out. You know, when looking back, I'm like, I'm glad that God didn't tell me where life was going. Okay? I'm glad it just kind of came upon me because I'm like, no thank you. I don't want that, you know? Um, but we get through it as we, as we trust Him and make progress in our relationship with Him. Anybody else? Yes. Sorry, last question. You're first. right. All right. Uh, so when you look at Genesis 18.23, Aram's talking to God in Sodom and Gomorrah, and Aram changes God's mind. So do you believe that God's sovereignty is malleable? No. Okay. All right. And see, here's the idea. With God changed his mind. All right. God doesn't. First of all, he knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. I often say this. Has it ever occurred to you? That it never occurred to God. <laughs> he just knows everything. Okay, so the idea of him changing his mind it means that his action changed because they moved, they did something. Like God threatens, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to wipe you out, but they repent, and so then He doesn't wipe them out. He doesn't. You know, in the Bible, use that terminology. God changes mind, but again, He knows everything. He always knows what's the best, and you know, He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen down the road, so He doesn't need to alter anything. So, again, there are difficult things in the Bible that we come across like that. We're like scratching. How does that fit in with the rest of it? That's why as we read through Scripture, all of Scripture, we start putting things together. All right? I'll tell you, one of the strongest things to me that I've gotten from reading the Bible constantly every year through through is the absolute sovereignty of God. He controls everything. Amen. I mean, you watch. He does this. He does that. And everything's happening just... How can God give a prophecy? How can the prophets give a prophecy if God didn't control everything? I prophesied this is going to happen. Well, what if that person died? What if a mosquito bit that man, he got malaria, and he died? And God's like, oh, i got to go to plan B, that darn mosquito. No. Everything is controlled. And I know, listen, this is how big God is. This is how awesome God is. All right? That he controls all things. And you'll see that, you know, through the scripture very clearly. Because he, and he tells us that so we can have peace. When I first understood the sovereignty of God, it bothered me so much. I was Arminian, so it really bothered me. Who does he think he is? And then I realized, oh, he thinks he's God. <laughs> okay, you can do whatever you want. That's the advantage of being God. You can just do whatever you want. So the sovereignty of God really bothered me because I thought that's not right because I sell bad things and I didn't want to blame them on God, you know? But I didn't understand that if God can't control that, then we're, we're in trouble. Okay? So when I did come to understand and embrace the sovereignty of God and came to Calvinism, 
it was just like a breath of fresh air. It's like, I'm in such peace because my God who loves me, I go back to that basic thing, He loves me, controls the environment around me for my good and His glory. Rest in peace. Just rest in peace. That's it. That's it. You can rest in peace because, I mean, just think of the things we do that have put our lives at risk. You know, and I'm not talking about COVID because I don't think that's too life-risking, all right? <laughs> but I mean, we're driving down the interstate, you know, or we're driving down just the two-lane highway at 50 miles an hour and the cars are right back. What does it take for someone to come into our lane, you know? And you hear people escaping the things they should never escape, and you hear of other people dying under the strangest circumstances. A guy's jogging along the beach, and he gets hit by a plane and killed. Because the plane, you know, had problems, and he was trying to land. The guy had ear things in, and he was running along listening to music. couldn't hear the plane coming in, and hit him and killed him, running on the beach. Okay, strange things? Yeah. God is in control. All right. Kath, band, singers, come on down here. Wait, wait the rest Okay, here's a question. On a stage, do we have a say in things? All right. When I say we don't have free will, I think that free will is a, a misnomer. All right, no will is free. I, I, my will is bound by the things I learned, the things I like, my experiences in life. Martin Luther wrote a book about this thick called The Bondage of the Will. All right, and he talks about your will is bound. Okay, so free will is just ridiculous to start with. But then, you know, people, when you say that, people think, well, they don't have choices. Have you made any choices today? Did you feel compelled to do that? We just make choices. We make hundreds of choices every day. Yes, I have volition, and I choose constantly. And hopefully, I try to let the Word of God guide me so I choose right, but sometimes I don't. But we make choices. We're not robots. I did what I did because I, I married Kathy because... I thought she was hot. It wasn't, I didn't feel like God wants me to marry. No, I didn't know, I didn't even know God when we got married. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I did like that too. But, <laughs> but we make choices, people. So don't, this not this idea of, you know, we're puppets on a stage. No, we have volition. But somehow... In our choices, God controls and orchestrates. I mean, it, it just, it'll blow your mind because God is so big that we have trouble comprehending Him. 